in the Bible, in the book of James, chapter 1, this passage that Daniel read to us just a little earlier, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, we're told that Scripture is like a mirror. We need to think about it this way, James says. And as we do this, as we think about Scripture like a mirror, it's always important to recognize that when it comes to mirrors, you can look at them or you can look in them. And these are two different things. Think about someone going on an antiquing trip, right? That's looking at the mirror. Looking at its craftsmanship. Looking at its provenance, right? Looking at, at, its, at its patina. But looking in a mirror, it's different. You can examine a mirror as an object. Or you can actually use a mirror. Over the past six weeks, I've preached four different sermons and delivered a lecture in our downtown talk series, all focused on the authority of Scripture. All of these messages were looking at the Bible, was describing the Bible. I was trying to get us as a group to, to, to have a, a clear thought, what is this book? We've been examining the mirror. We've been studying the mirror. And that's important. But it is not the only thing you do with the mirror. You also look in a mirror. We need to do that. See, if we were to take those sermons and that lecture and just leave them there, we've looked at the mirror. But that's, we've got to move beyond that. I said last week would be the final sermon in the series, but I was tricking. This morning, for the final, final sermon in the series, let's shift our gaze from looking at the mirror. And let's begin to think about how we look in Scripture itself. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, think about receiving a lover, a letter from your lover. He said, think about if a man gets a letter from his lover. Think about if this letter was written in a language that the man couldn't read. That maybe his beloved was bilingual or trilingual. And she wrote to him a letter in her own language. Maybe, uh, right, a soldier in the Vietnam War falls in love with a Vietnamese. The Mies woman comes home, gets a letter from her, right? This, this is not all that uncommon. What would the lover do? What would he do if there was no one around who could translate the letter for him? Well, what he would do is he would find a dictionary. He would spell his way through the letter. There's one line, Kierkegaard says, toiling and moiling. Right? He would look up every word in order to obtain a translation. He would grapple with the phrases. But once he's done looking up all the words and writing down the new translation, what's he going to do then? He's going to read the letter. When it comes to the Bible and how we read it, here are four points to remember. Number one, 
Just like translating a letter is different than reading a letter, there are two distinct ways of dealing with Scripture. On the one hand, we look at Scripture. This is analysis. This is studying the Bible. Studying about the Bible. Studying the words of the Bible. Many of you grew up being taught to do your quiet time this way. To think carefully, to analyze, to observe. That's one way of dealing with the Bible. But there's another way. The other way is to look into the scriptures. Like you look into a mirror. And this is not study. This is listening. This is listening for God's voice. This is listening for God to speak to you. A lover reads, listening for the voice of the beloved. Right? Some of you, 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 you dated at a time where you wrote letters. Janelle and I wrote letters. When, we would, when I would read her letters gushing in praise, you know, just, you know how, it's kind of embarrassing, but you know how it is. I could hear her voice. That's what a lover does with a letter from a beloved. So there's reading the Bible with the posture of study and analysis. And there's reading the Bible with the posture of listening. And these are two different modes of scriptural engagement. Two different ways of, the pro- of approaching the Bible. Two different orientations to the Bible. When we analyze the Bible, we study it. That's like looking at the mirror. When we, but the posture of listening, this is like looking into the mirror. So my first point is... Analyzing the Bible, studying the Bible is not the same as listening for God's voice. Looking at the mirror, looking in the mirror, these are two different things. That's the first point. The second point is this, both are necessary. Both are necessary. Just like with the lover's work of translating, we have to study the Bible. We have to know what these words mean. We have to know what they mean in this context. We have to know what they mean coming out of a particular culture. All the stuff I've been saying over the past six weeks, it's critical. It's really important. It's important that that we recognize this book for what it is. But stopping there is like translating the words of the love letter and never actually reading it. It's like looking at a mirror but never looking into the mirror. So my second point, both are necessary. My third point is this. The two different ways of coming at the Bible, looking at it, studying it, and listening for God's address, not only are they both necessary, they belong together. They're organically related to one another. Listening without studying produces shallow Christianity. Or even worse, a Christianity that drifts off base. That bootlegs in the presuppositions of its own culture. And twists the Bible like a wax nose into its own image. Listening without studying will distort God's voice. But we can mess up in the other direction too. We can study the Bible without listening for God's address. This produces a dry, lifeless Christianity, a spiritless religion. And this is one of the reasons why some people have lost their faith while studying the Bible in college. 
But I said we need both. See, the problem is, if you're studying the Bible in a context that causes you to shift into an orientation that you never shift out of. Christian professors of the Bible in the room, Bob and others, since we know who you are. We need you to, obviously you have to play according to the rules. But students in your classes need help with this. this is, these are treacherous waters. One more thing. The fourth point. Listening for God's voice in the Bible is primary. That's the first priority. Why? Because of the nature of Scripture. At its most fundamental level, Scripture is what? God's Word. That's not a metaphor that we use just as a suitcase to beat people over the head who don't believe it. Unpack the metaphor. Scripture is the Word of God spoken to us. Therefore, you approach it as Word, as a Word from God to you. At its most fundamental level, Scripture is God's Word to God's people. It is God's address, God's speech. So you translate the love letter in order to hear the voice of Of the beloved. You translate it for the purpose of listening. Study is for the purpose of listening. The church is primary. The academy is secondary. The Bible is first and foremost to be listened to. We study the Bible in order to hear better what God is saying. But it must be a study that flows out of a listening and then leads back into a richer listening. I love the way Isaiah 55 puts it, this passage that Winona read to us. What an incredibly gracious invitation to Yahweh's feast. Listen to it again. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money. Come buy and eat. Now you should say wait a minute. How do you do that? How do you buy something if you have no money? Do you see that a irony has been set up? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do you do that? It doesn't say get wine and milk without money. It says buy it with no money. How do you do that? This is a conundrum. This is a puzzle. It's like the painting on the front of our worship guide. It's a puzzle within a puzzle. As Kelly pointed out to me earlier in the week. Why? And, then the, and then Isaiah 55 goes on. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Now, how do we get into the feast? How do we get this bread, this water, this milk? How do we answer the invitation if the invitation is to buy something, but we can't buy it with money? If money doesn't get it, what purchases it? Listen to verse 2 and 3. Listen diligently to me and you will eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. That is how you come to me. Hear that your soul may live. What is the purchase price? Listening. Listening. 
Since the nature of scripture is that it is God's address, God's word to God's people, the way to approach scripture is to approach it with a listening ear, with a posture of receptive listening. See, studying the Bible, that's standing over the Bible, analyzing the Bible. Wordsworth, we murder to dissect. But listening is sitting under the Bible. It's sitting at the feet of the master. We've got to develop the ability to listen for God's address in Scripture. But this is the problem. Because listening is harder to do than it is to acquire and spend money. He didn't make the enjoyment of the feast easier by saying you can't, money doesn't do it. He actually took it to a whole different level of difficulty. It is hard to listen well. Parents, think of how much energy goes into teaching your children to listen. Teachers, how hard is it to get students to hear you? Listening is so hard. And it's hard for a whole host of reasons that I went through in the first draft of the sermon. But then it was like 9,000 minutes long, so I cut them out. I think, though, I think I'm going to put them in the footnotes and it'll be online in the manuscript. Let me just sum it up. I think the reason listening is hard for us. I think there are three basic reasons for us. Today, at this moment in time. First of all, we are flooded with an unending stream of information on a daily basis. And that just makes you numb. Secondly, we are way too busy. Sinfully busy. Thirdly, we should not underestimate the way our education system shapes us week after week, month after month, year after year to read for the facts, the useful, the relevant. Because you've got to pass the test. And do not underestimate what 12, 14, 17 years of learning to approach text in order to pass tests. Do not underestimate how that shapes you as a listener. For these reasons and some others, listening for God's voice in Scripture is so difficult. But we can't get around it. Listening for God's address in Scripture is our first task when it comes to Scripture. Over and over in his parables, Jesus said, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Did you notice how many times? In my reading of the gospel passage, listen, hear, word. How many times this stuff came up? When when you're reading Mark's gospel, the interesting thing about chapter 4, the passage I read, I read Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 25. The interesting thing is that this is the first time Mark lays out for us the the content of Jesus' teaching. This this parable of the sower and the soils, in Mark's gospel, it's the foundational parable for Jesus as the teacher. And in Mark chapter 4, some version of the word here is used 13 times. In fact, this is the foundational parable for you and I when it comes to listening for God's voice. Did you notice that there's one sower 
And one type of seed, the only thing that changes is how that seed is received, how it is heard, because there's listening and then there's listening. So how do we really listen to Scripture? How do we listen in such a way that God's Word actually nourishes the deepest parts of our lives, our, the deepest parts of our being, so that it grows in us and dominates our actions and our thoughts, our public life and our private life? How do we listen, really listen, so that God's Word can actually change us, transform us, so that we really do love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we actually and practically love our neighbors as ourselves? How do we listen in such a way that the Word of God can change us, into being truly human and truly ourselves so that we once again are in the image of God. How do we listen in this way? How do we listen so that the seed of God's word bears fruit in our lives 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold? How do we do that? Two keys to listening well. Two keys to listening in such a way that the word bears fruit. Number one, listening well requires trust. It requires trust. And in this age where it is so hard to believe, where faith is fraught, where we no longer believe instead of doubting, but we believe while we doubt, that's a new moment in time. That is our moment. In this age of so many Thomases, where it's not one among 12, but it's only one among 12 who doesn't doubt. How do we listen well? We listen well by gambling on trust. We have to become like children. We have to approach Scripture fundamentally trusting that God is the primary author. If you don't trust that, if you don't just presume that, assume that, you you will not hear God's voice if you don't think this is God's book. We have to approach Scripture fundamentally trusting that there is a divine author to Scripture that is the primary author of Scripture. And then even though it's filled with many human authors, they were in the hand of God and he did not mess up. And that the dominant characteristic of Scripture is its divine truthfulness and authority and coherence. And this is so difficult in today's day and age where believing in God is difficult. We're believing in a text written over thousands of years by different people in different cultures where we've been convinced to look at that as if it's battling against itself, as if it's dialoguing with itself and we become another dialogue partner and somehow in the midst of all this dialogue we can discover God's wisdom. Baloney. There's some truth to that metaphor, but it is being used to distort all kinds of things today. We must return to the divine authority, the divine authorship of Scripture. We have, because if we don't, then our posture is not one of trust. 
Do you know what it's like to say something to somebody whose fundamental attitude toward you is distrust? Cynicism, skepticism? You know how that distorts the entire communicative process. Right? If my wife and I are having a discussion and she's convinced that I'm a liar, I'm not trustworthy, that's going to be a hard conversation for her to hear what I'm actually saying. If the nature of Scripture is God's speech, then our job with Scripture is to listen for God's voice. And listening has to be rooted in trust. If it's not, it will distort the entire experience. Hearing God's address in Scripture starts with trust. The real presence of God fills Scripture. That's what the inspiration of Scripture means. The inspiration. The inspiredness, the inbreathedness of Scripture. Scripture is filled with the Spirit of God, the, the presence of God. The Bible is God's Word. This is the seed Jesus was talking about. And Mark says, look, before you get anything from Jesus' teaching, this is where you have to start. In Scripture, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet us, His children, and to talk with us. And if we're going to hear the Bible right, we have to gamble on trust. Not be, con- not be certain, but take a risk. Dare to believe. We're the host. If someone knocks on the door, you gamble on trust. You open the door in an act of faith that they will not ravage you and destroy you. The move toward the Bible is laying a clean cloth on the table. It's an act of hospitality. It's an act of faith that a guest who has your good has arrived. Since scripture is the vehicle, the means through which God speaks, we should approach the Bible with the attitude of respectful listening, a trembling, open receptivity, a trusting, humble hospitality. That's the first key for hearing God's address in scripture. Second key, silence. Silence. Listen to this passage from the Bible. It's from the book... Of Ecclesiastes, the greatest book in the Bible, the pinnacle of all the books in the Bible, the center of the Bible itself, Ecclesiastes. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This is Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1 through 3. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you're on the earth. In other words, who's your daddy? That's just the Bible way of saying that. Therefore, since God is infinite and you are this finite creature in light of his utter transcendence. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness or business, depending on how you want to use that word. And a fool's voice comes with many words. In this passage, we're given a warning. We're told, stop talking if you want to listen. 
Only the silent hear the voice of God. And those who do not remain silent cannot hear God's voice. Listening begins in silence. Here's how Kierkegaard ends his advice on reading the Bible well. He says the first thing, the unconditional condition, the very first thing that must be done is this. Create silence. Bring about silence. God's word cannot be heard in the hullabaloo. Create silence. 18th century. What would he say today? But we know this, right? After all, when God offers himself to us in Psalm 46 verse 10, he calls us to silence. Be still and know that I am God. Now there are different types of silence. The kind of silence we need for listening is not, it's not that momentary silence of turning your attention to someone. No, the silence we need for listening is so much more than that. It's the act of self-emptying. Of bringing your, your whole self before the Almighty. But I'm not talking about an amnesic or stupid silence. No, it's more a question of mobilizing your knowledge and your experience and making them fluid and lively so that they will serve the attention instead of replacing the attention. Offering God the hospitality of silence is not a matter of giving God the pitiful offering of an instant of our blessed attention. It is more than that. It is about relinquishing our arrogance and inclining toward God and offering him our whole being. If we don't, nothing new will be said. We will only hear the incessant murmur of our own idle chatter. Such a fruitful, hospitable silence. This is the way we come to the Bible so that the deepest parts of our lives are nourished by the seed that will bear 30, 60, 100 fold fruit. This kind of attentive silence, it requires effort and patience, repeated, imaginative, deliberate, vigilant attentiveness. It's hard work. It is really, really hard to read the Bible well. It is really, really hard to squeeze in listening into a life that you have sinfully filled too much to the brim. No margin. No voice. No no space of silence in your life. You will turn God into your own image. So how do we do this? How do we get quiet enough so that our own inner chatter calms down? How do we gather up our mind and our body and our heart and our imagination in order to offer ourselves to God as a temple of listening silence? How do we do this? It's tough. But if we do it, if we can do this, then this silence will become eloquent. It will become the palace of encounter. So how? How do we do it? How do we offer to God such a rich, hospitable silence? Well, the best help I've received 
for trustingly, silently listening for God's voice in Scripture is from the wonderfully creative work of the Irish Jesuits, a group of Catholics in Ireland. I'm going to pass out some, something to you. I didn't put it, give it out to you earlier because I didn't want you reading it. All the nerds in the room would rather read than listen. So everybody needs one of these. If you've got a friend who's not here or a spouse who's not here, you're, you're welcome to take a couple. The Irish Jesuits have produced a remarkable website and a book called Sacred Space. Let me walk you through it. Basically, this is called Lexio Divina or Lexio Sacra, um, uh, spiritual reading, divine reading. It's a disciplined entry into a trusting, listening, fruitful silence. Here's how it goes. Seven steps, which really it's more like seven dance moves. They weave in and out, but uh, we murder to dissect. All right. So we have to tear it apart to teach it. But the way you practice it is a little different. Let's walk through it. You begin by entering into silence. Relax. Slow down. Just think about the way we start our service. Right? Slow down. Let the thoughts and stresses of the day go. Be still. Still your body, heart, and mind. Lots of ways you can do that. You know? Use the art on the front of our worship guide. Right? Put that in your prayer place. My favorite way is to take take a deep breath and light a candle. Let out my breath slowly and remember John 8, 12 when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You can choose a prayer word. If you don't have one, I suggest Jesus. Repeat it as you breathe in and out. Opening yourself, not to the nothingness, but to Christ. All right? Some people use the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And just saying this as you breathe slowly and relax your body and, and, and bring yourself Into the hospitable silence. Then you move into phase two. The presence of God. I love reading this verse in phase two. Behold I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I remind myself that Jesus has arrived to my prayer place. Before I ever got there. He wants to talk to me more than I want to talk to him. He loves me more than I love him. He knows it all. There are no secrets. And he's still there. Still there. Still waiting. Desiring to connect with me even more than my most intimate friend. So you take a moment and greet your loving God who comes to you in Jesus. Actually do it. Say hello. I'm so glad to see you. Come in. Phase three. Freedom. I love this quote from St. Ignatius. In those, these days, God taught me as a school teacher teaches a pupil. So you remember there are things God has to teach me yet. I do not know it all. Even though I've read this verse a thousand times. My God is a living God. This is a living book. It is more than content. It is more than principle. It is more than truth. And so I ask for the grace To hear what God has to say. God, give me the freedom to hear you and to be changed. 
Phase four, consciousness. Ask yourself, how am I really feeling? Become conscious to yourself. Remind yourself that Jesus became fully man and was tempted as you are. He is able to sympathize with your weakness. And maybe you don't want to be there. Maybe you don't have time to be there. Maybe the last thing you ever want to do is talk to him. Maybe it's not because you're mad at him. It's just because you're a slob. Maybe that's what you should say. Nothing against you. I just don't care right now. I just read, I just got, I'd rather actually read the Bible than sit quiet before you and talk to you. I'd rather do things for you. I'm just not accustomed to this kind of slowing down stuff. This isn't my style. Or maybe you say to him, I'm feeling excited right now. I'm, I'm happy right now. I'm so glad to be here with you right now. I can't believe you're here with me right now. Just look, engineers in the room, suck it up. And for once, own up to what you're feeling. I'm joking. I'm joking. Sort of. You just, you just <laughs> remind yourself it is the real me that the Lord loves. Acknowledge to Jesus how you really are. Look, it all is predicated on, on the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. That at the heart of Christianity is this astounding idea that the Almighty actually cares about you. Not just your eternal destiny and your objective goodness or not, but you. And now you're ready to read scripture. So you take time to read a scripture passage slowly, a few times. Now look, whatever passage, you're, you know, just pick a book and you read one paragraph at a time, working your way through it each day of your quiet time. Read out of Proverbs, a chapter, whatever day of the month it is. So this is the first day, so read Proverbs chapter 1. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, so Bob's your uncle, as Zeke would say. Just what? Oh, it's the 15th, so read Proverbs 15. Pick something. Pick Genesis, hard to go wrong there. Ezekiel, easy to go wrong there. Be careful. It is. It's easy. To, Revelation, some of you need to wait many years. It's easy to do things with that that God doesn't want you doing with it. Revelation, more than any book in the Bible, depends on an intimate, thorough knowledge of every story in the Old Testament. That's why so many goofy books are bestsellers, based on Revelation. So pick a passage of Scripture and read it. Read it slowly. What word or phrase or scene catches your attention? When we read the Bible with our kids, that's the question we ask. Would you notice? Look, you're not analyzing. There's a place for that. It's secondary. And you know, when I read the Bible, I know a lot more about the Bible than, than probably most of you. That's okay. That doesn't mean you can't read it well. And it doesn't mean I, I put all my knowledge at the door. Remember I said it's not, about, it's not about amnesia. It's not about forgetting what you know. But it's about letting what you know kind of serve the listening process. What, what do you notice? What stands out to you? Like enjoying a piece of hard candy. Slowly let it circulate in your mouth. You know, that's what you do with a great piece of cinnamon candy or something. You savor it. Do that. Whatever stood out to you, dwell on it. Then phase six, conversation. Now notice what feelings rise up in you as you pray and reflect on the passage. I, what I do, you know, I imagine Jesus. He's sitting right there. I sit in my green chair in my office. Jesus sits right there on the end of the couch. I look toward where he's sitting. And I talk to him as one friend talks to another. Stream of conscious. I don't try to become expert at praying. I don't try, I, I, 
You know, talk to him like uh, two great friends talking, where you're not even thinking about what you're saying, you know, where you're not insecure. You're just talking. What feelings rise up in you as you pray and reflect? Imagine him sitting there and open your heart to him. Share with him your thoughts and your feelings and your reflections. This is not studying the Bible. There's a place for that. This is primary. Okay? So, so many of us, I was, the way I was taught to have my daily quiet time was, what's, what's, the thing, what's this phrase that university teaches so well? Observation, what is it? Observe, interpret, apply. That's the way I was taught a similar way. I was taught read the Bible, look for something that applies to your life, write that out, and then pray about it. That's much closer to studying. Very important. Both of, look, listening is primary but not exclusive. You got to have both. But this is primary. Don't slip in, into that study mode if you can help it. And then you conclude. Pray the glory be, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and evermore shall be, world without end. There's a whole tradition in the Anglican Church that when we say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and glory be, we cross ourselves. It's just a way of saying to our body, um, this is who God is. He is the Trinity. That's how I come to him. You, you can pray um, a benediction. Here's a great one out of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip me with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in me what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a great way. You've got to find a way to conclude it. You can use the Our Father. Our Father is in heaven. Find a ritualized way of concluding it. That it kind of just, it's like saying, okay, goodbye. But that's not the right word because you're going with each other. Here's the deal. You, you can do this in 10 minutes. In fact, I challenge you. Set a goal. 15 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day. Pick. You do nothing now? Pick 10 minutes. You can, if you can't squeeze 10 minutes into your day, shame on you. Really? That's shameful. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes and say, my goal is to do this five days a week. Maybe there's one day a week you can never pull it off. Maybe you don't do it on Sunday because uh, you got so much of this going on or maybe you do. I don't know. But you can do this fast. You can do it long. Can you see how this approach to reading scripture centers around the posture of listening to Jesus Christ in, a, in an attitude of trust? Notice how this approach to reading is an arc of silence. And I'm doing a play on words. A-R-C and A-R-K. The beginning silence is a kind of silence that we acquire through disciplining the inner voice so that another voice can be heard. But an arc. The final silence is that mystic silence where speech has been dumbfounded in the presence of Christ. But it's not only an arc of silence, it's also an arc of silence. It's a a silence in which you can meet with God. This way of reading the Bible begins in the silence of hospitality and it ends in a nuptial silence. The silence in which the beloved and his lover encounter each other in intimacy. Where words are no longer appropriate. This way of reading the Bible rests on the presupposition that sacred scripture is the breast of Jesus. 
What a beautiful image. When we turn our attention to Scripture, we're like John at the Last Supper, laying our head intimately on the bosom of Christ. I'll close with this. Look in your Bibles at Psalm 40, verse 6. Psalm 40. If you don't have a Bible with you, just turn in your worship guide to page 3. It was our passage in our worship guide. It was our psalm we read together. Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. How does your Bible translate the next phrase? Anybody? But what? What's the next phrase? Ears. Ears have you opened for me? Literally, in Hebrew, ears you have dug for me. That's the literal phrase. Any other translation is an interpretation of the metaphor. Think about how evocative this metaphor is. It's telling us how hard it is to hear God. One of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson, I love how he deals with this verse. He says, imagine a human head with no ears, a blockhead, eyes, nose, mouth, no ears. Where ears are usually found, there's only smooth, impenetrable surface, granitic bone. Is granitic a word? Did he make that up? Granite-like bone. God speaks. No response. This metaphor occurs in a, in a sandwich of bustling religious activity, right? Uh, verse 6 at the beginning, sacrifice and offering. That's bustling religious activity. The end of verse 6, burnt offering and sin offering. Right, right in the middle of all that religious activity is this, is this phrase. And then a little later, right in the middle of that, he says, but God is speaking. And more than your activity, the important thing is to listen. But what good is a speaking God without listening ears? So God, this is Peterson's incredible style. He says, so God gets a pick. And a shovel, and he digs through the cranial granite, opening a passage that will give access to the interior depths and to the mind and heart. The result is a restoration of scripture. Eyes turn in to ears. Ears you have dug for me. This is the spirit of the book of Proverbs, which tells us over and over, the fool is the one who will not listen. God has ordained scripture as the primary way in which he brings the church to himself and speaks to the church. And in our hyper busy, overly technological world, we have got to recover the primacy of creative receptivity, of listening to scripture for God's address. And this requires trust and it requires the hospitality of silence. Let's pray.